So like I said, we are concluding our eight series practice, our series on the eight practices this morning. And the eight practices are just these really practical ways that we can all, no matter where we find ourselves in, on other continuums of, uh, of theology or things like that, uh, that we can all together practice our faith and follow and become more spiritually mature in the footsteps of Jesus. So we've talked about choosing presence. That's our first practice, that in a world that's constantly trying to grab our attention to buy things and to be entertained to death, we can choose presence. That we are people who are practicing seeking of health, that it's normal to neglect your own needs so that you can continue to work and amass more supposed security and wealth. And we wanna be people who practice and take time to seek health for ourselves and our families and our city, to cultivate spirituality, that instead of just relying on uh, ideas of our faith, of just easy believisms and, uh, and magic escape routes, that we want to actually cultivate our spirituality so that we have a good chance and opportunity to hear from God and to be strengthened in our spirits to follow after what God has for us. To embrace diversity, where there are constant myths and messages that one people or one church has all the right answers, that we practice and choose to embrace diversity in thought, in race, in ethnicity, in sexual orientation, that all people are welcome and all people can belong and their ideas and their life experiences matter and are significant. To engage culture, we can easily be saturated with culture without thinking about it critically. We can absorb all types of mess messages and catechesises from TikTok and Instagram and everywhere else, the cable news, and instead we choose to engage culture, to run up to meet it and to see what it has to say and engage those ideas with intentionality. To create beauty, to be a people who know that we are made in the image of a God who beauty is not just a side thing, it's not just the cherry on top, but the point of our lives is beauty, is to see, to interact with, to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. When God created the world, it was so good. It was so beautiful and lovely. And that we can take part as image bearers of God to continue to create beauty in our world and find purpose in that. And to show mercy, to show mercy, to be people who first receive the loving kindness of God, and then show it and share it out into the world around us. Hased, remember, the loving kindness of God, showing mercy. And that leads us to our final practice, the eighth practice, to pursue justice. So um, last year, I got pulled over right outside here, right around the corner. And it was because my tags were expired, and they were really expired. Uh, we had moved last year, and the, the tag stuff had just gotten lost in, in all the paperwork. And when you have three little kids and you're just doing a lot outside, you just don't look at your license plate very often and notice if it's expired or not. 
Um, by the way, if you see that in the parking lot, if you ever see my truck and you see that my tags are expired, don't think, oh, he's, he's a responsible pastor guy. He, he knows what's going on there. Tell me, okay? Tell me, let me know, help me out. And my wife is not laughing right now. Um, so, so I got pulled over, got a ticket, and I started making the phone calls to the, the, the little numbers on the sheet. And, it, and it was, it's, it's always scary uh, uh, when, when I get a ticket, when I get pulled over, and, um, and I start calling numbers, and people aren't generally very helpful when you talk to somebody related to these things. So I finally figured out I've gotta go down to 201. First I gotta get my tags, then I gotta go down to 201 and show that I got my tags and see what they, what they have to say for that. And when I went downtown to, to 201 Poplar, I was standing in lines, and I've had to do this more than a few times uh, over my adult life. So it's not like it was a new experience for me, but what I noticed is the same thing that I've noticed every time I've been to 201 Poplar, which is 95% of the people there were black at 201 Poplar in a city that's pretty much like 50-50. It's like 50-50 black and white. And you know, not, not that I could tell exactly, but they didn't exactly look like the wealthiest people in the city either. And it's a really sad, dreary place. And as I'm standing in line, if you've ever been there, you're standing in line and you go up to a court clerk eventually and you show them their ticket and they ask you, you know, what did you do and what, what do you wanna do and do you have your paperwork? Cause it's all these minor fee things. And I just see the, the few people in front of me and I hear their interactions and I'm like, man, this is, this is just feels so hopeless. They're, they're coming in, they don't have the money, they don't have what they need. I come up and I, I've got my tags, I paid all my stuff and she just dismissed my ticket and I walked out and I have to think about it again. But there was a sense of going through the motions for the people in front of me, and I've heard it every time, which is like, no, I can't do that. Yes, you have to find me more. Yes, I have to have this next court date. It was just like, yeah, that's, that's my life. And so when I think of pursuing justice and the practice of pursuing justice in Memphis, I think about moments like these, and I think about the fact that the people in there broke a law. They, they, had to, uh, they had to come to justice like I did because my tags were expired and the taxes for tags and the money for tags is how they you know, fix the roads and do all those things. But at the same time, is it really just if all the people who are accountable for these areas of justice tend to be poor minorities? So justice is a complex issue and the scriptures recognize that and they, they divide that in such a way as to say, justice is not just this thing about if you did something wrong, you suffer consequences. It's, it's a lot more than that. And we're gonna start here in this passage where Jesus is reading from this scroll, Isaiah, and he talks about that there is, he's quoting this part that says that there is uh, the year of the Lord's favor in verse 19 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's saying this is fulfilled in him 
being there, him coming on the scene. And his listeners would have been really familiar with this idea, and it would have brought to mind all kinds of ideas about what justice looked like in the history of the people of God. And so he's quoting from Isaiah, but Isaiah is using a phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, that goes all the way back to this book that none of you, unless you've done like a whole year Bible reading plan, have probably ever read, and you probably fell asleep some of the time, Leviticus. Yeah, Leviticus, all right. Josh, we did a Bible study on Leviticus in like 2013 together. Yeah, at 5.30 in the morning at Starbucks. We were crazy. Yeah, that was horrible. That was really crazy. Yeah, we didn't have kids. We sure didn't have kids. Yeah. And so this year of the Lord's favor, it's talking about this thing called the year of Jubilee. And this year of Jubilee this year of the Lord's favor would have come to the minds of the people in the synagogue there. And I want to read just a little bit to you about this so we can fill our imaginations with this idea of justice. So in verse 8 in Leviticus 25, here's the instructions for the year of Jubilee. Count off seven Sabbath years. So every seventh year was a Sabbath year, which meant everybody got to rest for like a whole year. So every seventh year, wow, that's pretty incredible. That we could kind of like, that could blow our minds for quite a while, right? But we're not stopping there. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. That's some mathing right there. Hope you're still with me. Then, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. What does that mean? Liberty to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. That's what the rest looks like. And here's where it gets really big, really big. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. So let me stop right there for a moment. This assumed everyone had their own property first. So when the, when the people of Israel were led out of slavery of Egypt where they owned nothing, they were led out and eventually to this promised land and that the land was to be divided up so that every, every clan of the 12 tribes of Israel, they all had their own property, they all had their own land. Now what happened when, when after the land was distributed is something that, that happens all over the place, uh, not everywhere, but in lots of places in the world where somebody dies, somebody loses something in a natural disaster, and people go broke, their crops don't perform, all their animals get sick and die, some misfortune happens, and they have to sell their land just to survive. Okay? So on the beginning of the 50th year, it says, this is a jubilee, it's for everybody, and it means everybody gets to return to their own property. 
Yeah, so if you sold your property to survive, at the end of the 50th year, your family gets their property back. It's like everybody works for Wall Street or big banks in America. It doesn't matter if you lose your stuff, we'll bail you out. Well, that's not really apples to apples, is it? But uh, anyway, um, so in this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the last Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. So when you buy the land, it's based on how many years until the land will go back to its owners. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. So you don't get to take somebody else's land permanently, even if they sell it to you. It's just based on, do you have, do you have 20 years left until the next Jubilee, five years left? And so the price is gonna be bigger if there's more years and smaller if there's less years until the property goes back to the owners. Verse 17, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord, your God. So just going back to this verse here, verse 10, it says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. This is the same word that Jesus is using. He's talking about liberty. The, uh, the Jewish word, that I'll, I mean, the uh, Hebrew word that I will most definitely mispronounce, diore, it has this idea of a free-flowing, like, fluid, like mirth. Uh, so, like, a perfume, like, just being poured out. Almost think of when the, the woman with the perfume pours the perfume all over Jesus lavishly. It's just this generous outpouring. That's the idea here of this liberty. It is so that everybody is generously provided for. And then this, this, word, uh, this word jubilee, it actually means just like the ram's horn. It's like, it's like a party symbol. You know, like the horns being blown, this means that, uh, that this year of jubilee is in effect. And that means everybody is going to be generously taken care of again, that all the debts are going to be erased. Now, in addition to that, so this is what Jesus is saying is, is coming in it, through his body, through his, his, his teachings, his eventual death and his resurrection, that this is this year of Jubilee. He is manifesting this in the world. Uh, the other thing that, is happening on the day that the year of Jubilee begins is the Day of Atonement, which is the day that people would be forgiven all of their sins in the community, that the sins of the people would be ceremoniously placed onto a goat where we get the term scapegoat from, and that scapegoat is sent out into the desert to send the people's sins as far away from the east as from the west. Unless the goat wanders back in, then you gotta like, somebody's like, get out of here, goat, you know. But Jesus is saying that these things, the year of the Lord's favor is being fulfilled in the beginning of his ministry. The day of atonement, the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of material debt for the people who are poor. So, fast forward, 
Rewind, fast forward. Fast forward from the time of Leviticus to the time of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is anticipating the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and he's talking about the year of the Lord's favor. And this is in a different time where it wasn't possible to give people's land back. Because no doubt, if you're thinking, I wanna pursue justice, but I can't do that. I can't do what's happening there in Leviticus. No, you sure can't. And neither could Isaiah and the people of, uh, the Jewish people at that point, and I called the Jewish people, uh, neither could those folks who were living in exile, who were separated from their property. And so Isaiah is riding along with the spirit of God, proclaiming what the years, uh, the year of the Lord's favor would look like in his day. This is what Jesus is quoting. And here's some of what he says. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord, for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. And it keeps going. And so what you see is Jesus is referring back to this potent idea of what the favor of God looks like. That those who were brought low by circumstance, by injustice, by whatever it might be, would be raised back up and be given uh, the means to live with equity and with security, that everyone got that opportunity. And also that the, the sins that weighed people down would be removed. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah reimagines what this would look like since he's not in the place of the people, uh, the, the Israelites and the people of Leviticus. He reimagines what it looks like. And now as Jesus quotes Isaiah, he again is reinterpreting and reimagining what does the justice of God look like? What does the favorable year of the Lord look like? And he comes and he says, it looks like me. That's a big statement. And he starts, he says, the beginning of what this will look like is that the good news is preached to the poor. You know what's good news to the poor? You ain't gonna be poor no more. That's good news to the poor. It's not that Jesus saved you and you're gonna live in misery for the rest of your life and then once you go to heaven, then you'll, things will be good for you. That's not, that's not good news if I'm poor. I, don't, I have to have faith in something you're telling me, you're coming to me and telling me you are going to remain poor. I'm not going to do anything to help you, but it's good news. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's why he uses the year of the Lord's favor. It was two things. It was your sins are forgiven and your debts are forgiven. Two things, not one. <clears throat> Pastor Jamar Tisby, he says of the good news that it is a haunting word to power and a comforting word to the marginalized. 
So this is the function of justice in the scriptures. The function of justice is that justice takes the necessary course, whether it be in Leviticus or Isaiah or Luke in history, it takes the necessary course to restore God's right relationship to people and people's relationship to one another. That's the course of justice. If it's ever tweaked or used to to do anything other than that, it ceases to be justice any longer. Now, let's kind of break this down a little bit more in terms of the words. Remember, we spent a, a little bit of time last week talking about hasad and how we, we translate that as mercy, but it's this richer, bigger word. And justice in the scriptures cannot really be uh, just used, that one word used. It's really more of two words together that are often used together in the scriptures, um, the, the Hebrew word mishpat and tzedakah. And they translate mishpat, we translate to justice, and tzedakah, we translate to righteousness. Um, so first with mishpat, the most basic meaning is just to treat people equitably. That's the, that's the, if you had to boil it down to all the times you see it used in the scriptures, you would get something like that. So listen to these verses from Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 20. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. You can't bribe this God. He defends the cause. That phrase, defends the cause, is just the, just the one word, mishpat. Justice defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. This is, it says, this is the justice of God to defend the fatherless and the widow That is shorthand. It's a phrase that means anyone dispossessed, anyone on the margins, anyone who has fallen into hard times. The fatherless and the widow were the people who were without in a patriarchy the the means to provide for themselves. That's That's what that phrase means. It says, of God, he will do justice or defend the cause of the fathers and the widow and the foreigner residing among you. Why does a foreigner reside among us? Why do people immigrate to different places? Because they didn't have what they needed where they were. And God says, love them, love them. That's what I do. God, I love them and I defend their causes. That's the kind of God that I am. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So the word justice, to treat people equitably, irregardless of their circumstances. And then the other word here, tzedakah, refers to, it's, it, we translate it as righteousness, 
And righteousness means right relationship, in right relationship, being just. And all throughout the scriptures, these words are paired together, especially by the prophets. So in Amos 5.24, it says, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Mishpat and Tzedakah together. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord. How would we know the Lord? What do we need to know about God according to the scriptures? I am the Lord who exercises kindness, hasad. God shows mercy, justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedakah, on the earth. Those three things, that's why our last two practices are show mercy and pursue justice because God says, if you want to know me, know these three things about me. I am merciful and loving, especially to those with whom the human population have cast aside and that I practice justice, that I care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and the foreigner and I feed them and I take care of them and that that is the righteous way to live. If the world was in right relationship, that the scriptures say earlier in the Torah, in Exodus, right after, right out of the gate, the literal, the gate of the, of the walls of water, they walk through right after that, he says, there should be no poor people among you. And then, because God knows us, he said, if there are poor people among you, then do this. Do this. So justice operates within these three powerful concepts. Mercy, the loving kindness of God, justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedakah. This, these three things compose what, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, when the Old Testament talks about shalom, the integrated wholeness of a group of people. About these two words, mishpat and tzedakah, the, um, the well-known and scholarly pastor Tim Keller says this in his book, Generous Justice. He says, these two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat. It means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. And primary justice, or tzedakah, righteousness, is behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. So these are the, the biblical, we talk about justice a lot, but I wanna take some time to give some of the biblical reasons 
some of the uh, 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 breakdown of the words I should stay um, around where this comes all throughout the culture of scripture for you to see how, how central it is. I, I know uh, some of you were around, we had years ago, we had Austin Channing Brown here. I, uh, uh, she wrote, she wrote a, a, a book that was really popular at the time and I still get her, her newsletters and she talks about speaking about her experience as a black woman in the church in America. And she talks about these moments where somebody asks her like, hey, I'm down with all this, with like racial equality and everything, but can you show it to me in the scriptures? And, uh, and she talks about what a, what a frustrating thing that is. And because if you are a person who has grown up on the other side of injustice, you see it everywhere. You can't look at the scriptures. I mean, the primary story of scriptures that's constantly being hearkened back to, that Jesus is hearkening back to, is a story of people being liberated from slavery. It's everywhere. And some of us have been told a story that this Bible is about some spiritual, immaterial stuff and that we don't need to do anything or be concerned anything about the state of human beings in pain and misery all around us. And I don't have language strong enough that I can use right now to explain how passionately I hate that message. All that to say, there is this powerful spiritual component to what Jesus is preaching here that deals with these words. We sang about it in the beginning song, and I wanna share with you a couple of scriptures that talk about this in a really plain way. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God made him who knew no sin or had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the scapegoat on the day of the year of Jubilee. Jesus came to the people weighed down by the burdens of their sins and by the people who had power and authority over them who said, you are the sum total of your lack of ability to follow the rules that are most important to us. I've heard stories from many of you. I did all the right things in my faith tradition growing up and I found out the people with power over me had their things they told us to do and they lived any kind of way they wanted to. That's what came out. But it says this, that Jesus came, Jesus came in part to preach good news to the poor and part of that good news, one of two things of that good news is you no longer need to be weighed down by your sins, real or imaginary sin, because there's both of those that weigh us down. So Jesus's death became the day of atonement and brought the righteousness of God. Does that have a little bit different meaning after we've just spent that time talking about those words, that we could become the righteousness of God? What can a person weighed down by constant guilt do to build right relationships wherever they are? Not a lot. 
We become obsessed with trying to make ourselves clean and pure or trying to just hide and get away from that inescapable feeling of guilt. And Jesus comes and says, no, I'm taking all of that. I'm that once and for all goat. I'm that scapegoat. You can pin it all on me. And so he said that we can be the sedeca, the, the righteousness of God. We can do what Jesus said he came to do, be the embodiment of the year of Jubilee, that we can go and help to bring right relationship with others around us and be in right relationship to God. And so then the second, uh, the second scripture that uses some of the same ideas here that, that Jesus is talking about, that the scripture is talking about. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so then in verse 10, it says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What might these good works look like for people shown the grace of God, the grace, the loving kindness and mercy, the goodness poured out on us? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good work, to give the good news to the poor, to release those in prison, to set free the captives, to restore the sight of the blind, the good work is the work of justice for us to do in this world. Mishpat, to correct the wrongs, to make those things right. So all those, all those things that Javier shared, that is not the work of a few people who just happen to be fired up with justice or who happen to be the son of an immigrant. This is the central story of this book. And I'm pissed. I'm very angry. <laughs> that it has been made to seem ancillary to that work. Because as Tim Keller said, if we were to practice the righteousness of the scriptures, the mishpat or justice would almost be not not a thing. We wouldn't have to do much to talk about it. So my hope, my hope is that at Christ City, that the work of justice becomes contagious. That we find enough passion and anger in us as we read in that gospel story where Jesus comes into the temple and he can't help but throw some tables. Get out of here. No more. So talk about putting seat butts in the pews or whatever. Jesus kind of did the opposite of that. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's be people of justice. Let's pursue justice. Let's pursue these eight practices uh, together. And uh, let's pray. <clears throat> so God, thank you for the presence of Jesus in our world.
for the hope that it can give us. Knit us together, bind us together at this table that we're coming to, to remember how you saved us and what you've saved us to. Amen.